Friends, let us pray. Gracious God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Our first scripture reading today comes from 1 Chronicles. It is rare that you will ever see a single verse, because I am not a big fan of just single verses, because you sort of lend yourself to what's called pretexting. But in this circumstance, there is an exception. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32. Of Issachar, those who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kindred, kindred under their command. Our second reading today comes from the book of Acts. Should be a familiar story. Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription, To an unknown God. What therefore you worship as a known, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things, from one ancestor he made all, the, all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. And finally, our gospel reading today comes from Mark. Then they sent him to him some Pharisees and some Herodians to trap him in what he said. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are sincere and show deference to no one. For you do not regard people with partiality, but teach the way of God in accordance with truth. Now, is it lawful to pay taxes to the emperor or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, Jesus said to them, Why are you putting me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me see it. And they brought one. Then he said to them, Whose head is this and whose title? They answered, The emperor's. Jesus said to them, Give to the emperor the things that are the emperor's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So our last uh, week here in Sermon Madness in August is today. Thank you again. And this, is like, this really is one of my favorite traditions in a church is to, I mean, in part because it makes me work a little bit harder, right? I kind of have to figure out what y'all are thinking about and real quick sort of, you know, over a couple weeks really be able to develop scripture and to be able to figure out, okay, what is, what's actually being said underneath what's said? So it really keeps me on my toes and I hope that these four weeks has been a benefit to those of you who had put these certain uh, categories in, these ideas in, and for all of you who voted along the way. So this last one though is particularly near and dear to my heart. This idea of the responsibilities of Christians in government. 
And it's because for most of my life, this is a topic that I have personally wrestled with. If I, I'm sure by now most of you know that my first career before I got into the ministry was working for the state of Ohio. And I went and got my degree in public policy and then right away started working for the Ohio Department of Medicaid as a uh, affordable housing expert. And then with a friend of mine, we built a program for the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services uh, from scratch, got it through the legislature, everything not bad for a bunch of 20-somethings. Um, but it was a program, a multi-million dollar program that helped not only save money for Medicaid, but brought multiple people with severe and persistent mental illness out of inappropriate institutional settings like nursing homes and become sustainable out in the community. I had a pretty good career, and the whole time I did that career, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, what did it, what did it mean to be a Christian working for the state of Ohio? And for me, this stemmed in part from a hope that there could be a better way of doing things than what I personally had experienced. Now, these were the glorious days of the early aughts when, you know, it didn't constantly seem like a, a, a social civil war was happening all around us. Um, but I often would look at what was going on around me. I would look at the, the rhetoric that was going on, and I thought to myself, God has got to have a better plan for the way that we do things than what I see now. And even when I was in seminary, this was a primary research focus of mine. I've spent years and years studying, researching this topic. I even wrote a course for pastors to understand this topic more specifically. So this being said, it's really hard to take years and years and years worth of experience and boil it down to 15 or 20 minutes to be able to give you something to sort of hang your hats on. So I apologize. I don't think it's going to go long, but I'm worried it won't have the depth that I would hope for. And I think that what we're going to talk about applies not only to folks who are career bureaucrats like I was, and I'm fully proud to admit that I was a career bureaucrat, really as a Presbyterian pastor, that's like a side shift, right? That we are known for our bureaucracy in the Presbyterian church. So I think it's good for career bureaucrats, but I also think it's good for folks who might consider running for office. What are we supposed to do as Christians? Because in truth, there is a reality that no political party, no, no sort of take your pick kind of du jour way of looking at things that you would see on the news or in a newspaper or online will quite fit us as Christians. Democrat, Republican, this, that, and the third will always be slightly disappointed. So we need to figure out what we do alternatively if we choose to work in government or try to run for an office. And I think the first thing that I want to do is look at this Mark 12 passage, because when I think about passages that come up all the time related to this issue, Mark 12 is one that comes up on a regular basis, because it's one of the few that Jesus is very direct about talking about the government, very direct about talking about Caesar. And, not to mention, it's in three of the Gospels, the Synoptic, so we know that this was a story that was important for everyone. 
And so we hear Jesus saying, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, or render unto God what's unto God's. And it's really easy to say, well, then I think that just, that takes care of it. We give what we're supposed to give, and done and done. But like we talked about last week, if we just read it at that level, on the face, it's not exactly what the gospel writers are trying to help us understand. If we try to take a moral or social edict out of this passage, we're almost not using it for what it's worth. Instead, what this passage is about is about Jesus really being smart. Jesus not being one that could easily be taken advantage of by the Herodians, by the Pharisees, and by those at the beginning of Mark in that passage you'll see who want to trip him up. So I invite you that in this Mark passage, while it's important that we do hear something about rendering unto Caesar what is Caesar's, if our minimum responsibility is giving what we're supposed to give, well, that's fine, but I wouldn't use that as your primary hat hook to hang your theological hat on. Instead, I'd like to offer the other two places, the other two passages that we talked about here today. The first one being 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Now, I'm sure you're like, oh, yeah, I've heard this passage all the time. I mean, this is like, this is like my life hurts, right? I, I, whenever I think about passages I want to hang up on my wall, I look the First Chronicles all the time. No, this is like, feels like one of those esoteric, random ones stuck in to a story. And indeed, it's in a larger story about David slowly starting to build the army, slowly getting ready to overtake Saul and eventually become the king of the people of Israel. And so this little section here is drawn into a larger passage about all of the tribes that are with David as he prepares his army to start his attack on Saul. And what we find out about this tribe of Issachar is this is all that's mentioned about them. That they had an understanding at the time to know what Israel ought to do, and they had a couple hundred chiefs. And really, that's almost about all that we ever hear about the tribe of Issachar. It's one of the 12 that we don't hear a whole lot about. And this unique combination of words, having an understanding of the times. In the Hebrew, it's really unique. There's only one other time that these two words are put together, this knowing and understanding. And so what it reminds us as Christians, as the people of God, if we look at the Old Testament and we try to glean what is it like to be a member of the people of God, it's that this was important enough to call out as David overtook the kingship for the people of Israel, that there were a group of people in David's army who could be just specifically known for being aware and knowing the times, having a good intuition of what's happening and having a strong sense of where the world ought to go. And these two words that are next to each other have a two different kinds of meaning when we talk about knowing. It's not just brain knowledge. It's not just, oh, well, I've read the tactics. I know the, the strategy. This is how we should attack. There's also a deeper sense of knowing, a deeper sense of understanding. It's saying, one, that when we talk in Genesis how Adam knew Eve, sort of euphemistically talking about sexual intercourse, it's that same sort of deep, intimate knowing. 
not just physical knowing. But if you think about that depth of knowledge, something that is embodied knowledge, that's important to God and God's people, along with an intellectual understanding. But bringing those two together is exactly what the people of God needed. And so this one simple verse, which really is, like I said, sort of tossed away in a book that no one really ever wants to read, actually tells us a lot about the type of knowledge and the type of thing that God values. That for the people of God, if we're talking about how do we function in government, I think the first thing to remember is that God values a deep kind of knowledge to help the world move forward. So in our second passage, then, we turn to Acts. Now, this is a passage, it, this truly is one of my personal favorites, Paul at Mars Hill, because I think it's what do you do with the special kind of embodied knowledge? What do you do with the kind of knowledge that is both sort of a, a feeling but also a knowing, the type of experience we all carry with us that helps us understand how the world works? Sorry, I'm very thirsty today. We see Paul at Mars Hill, at the Areopagus. This was a center of thought. People were gathered all around, and it's funny to hear the writer of Acts talk about it, because it just seems like a place where smart people get around to talk about smart things, and that's really about it. And so they get together, and they talk, and Paul's there, and he sees all of these other statues, and he gets angry. He's furious about what he sees. That kind of embodied feeling that something isn't right. But then what he does is instead of just living into his fury, he then goes out and he starts to tell an important story. He says, people of Athens, I see that you are a very religious people. Look all around us. You've got statues everywhere. In fact, you've got one to an unknown God. You just are covering all your bases. Wow, that's really impressive. Let me tell you who that unknown God is. Let me tell you who you made that unknown God statue for. He's a God that is so near to us that even in our blindness we grope and we try to seek out that God near to us is who you're looking for. That even the people in your culture, not even part of my culture, your culture says in him we live and move and we have our being. So you all have been talking about this thing here and you haven't even realized it. So taking this embodied knowledge, this sense of something's not right, and then looking at what's going on in the community and saying, ah, hey, the story you're telling is not the right story. But I know you pretty well. I, I, I understand who your poets are. I understand who your cultural leaders are. I understand what's going on. And so let me tell you where I can graft this really important story onto the story you're telling. And in that way, perhaps help you understand 
what you are clamoring for a little better. So I think that our text doesn't necessarily invite us, like Mark, just simply to say that our relationship with the government, our relationship with culture is just simply a transactional one, but it is a transformational one. It's not just render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and be done with it. Instead, it's acknowledging what's going on, and I know we've done a sermon about this. It's looking at what's going on and saying, people of Jacksonville, People of San Marco, I see that you're clamoring for something just beyond your grasp. Let me tell you about what you're missing. Let me tell you what else is in store. That, to me, is the fundamental responsibility of Christians in government. Whether you are an elected official or whether you are somebody who's a career bureaucrat, from the bottom to the top is that we work to tell better stories of the unknown gods that sit around all around us. To what end, you may ask, is shifting these narratives for the welfare of the city, as Jeremiah 29 talks about. As a people in exile, we seek the welfare of those around us. And certainly we pay attention to the governing principalities this is, again, it's like I could have probably pulled up five or six texts to try to weave all this together. So I'm giving you a couple others here. So Jeremiah 29, as we're getting through Jeremiah and the people are in exile, and Jeremiah responds to the people in exile that the best thing that they can do is make a home for themselves, to plant vineyards, to seek the welfare of the city, not just to moan and groan about being exiles waiting to return to Jerusalem. And in the same way, 1 Peter also talks about a diaspora, a people who are in exile. And 1 Peter says the same thing. Seek the welfare of the city. Do what the government asks you to do. Do those things for the benefit of the people that you're with so that they can see that this whole Jesus thing that you're doing is actually worth something. Be the best citizen you can be. Our fundamental responsibility, then, is to carry a world-changing message that there is a better way of doing. One of my all-time favorite theologians is Johann Baptist Metz. Came out of World War II. A lot of my favorite philosophers and theologians were trying to figure out the mess that was World War II. They didn't understand what happened. How could such a terrible tragedy befall the world? And so they constantly were trying to find ways to respond. And what Johann Baptiste Metz says is he invites us to remember that the thing that we are carrying with us is a dangerous memory. That the stories we hear together, we hear here together on Sunday mornings, the ones that you have learned for week after week, are not some mollifying sweetheart soft kind of stories, although there are some of those. But instead, the gospel story that we think about, the God that we worship, the Jesus that we praise, did nothing less than come back from the dead. Jesus Christ 
completely upended everything about this world. As much as we love to have Jesus close to us, we ought to be rightfully afraid that if we truly lived out this message, if we truly saw the world as we see it in the Gospels, what would happen? There is so much power in the story of Jesus Christ, in the Gospel. Yes, it's sweet. Yes, it's render the little children unto me. But underneath it all, it's literally tearing apart the fabric of the universe as we know it from the top to the bottom. You all carry that story with you every day. One that could literally upend the world. And so Metz tries to remind us that maybe we shouldn't always think that this thing is just meant to coddle us to a, to a sort of sleepwalk throughout our days. But that the message of Jesus Christ could enliven us to a technicolor world in which we have not experienced nor enjoyed. And so what should we do, dear friends, as a responsibility as a Christian in government? It's telling this story that upends the world that we need our Arapagus moments. It's why we're here in part, moving the direction that we are as a church. Because there ought to be some place that is a Mars Hill that invites folks to find out who the unknown God is. And listen, if no one else is going to do it, why don't we? As I've argued, the gift of our Presbyterian heritage invites us to have these deep conversations. We are, if nothing else, Mars Hill people, and we do, on occasion, tend towards sitting and talking about important things and being important and smart. I'm guilty of that myself at times. I want to close today by telling you a story about why this matters. We all have our moments that we decide that we're done with the career that we have. Many of you have moved from one career to the other. You probably had a moment when you said, okay, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And for me, that happened in January of 2014. January of 2014 began a month in which, as part of my job, I needed to shut down a nursing home. Because at times, nursing homes that primarily take Medicaid, if they have too many people with serious and persistent mental illness, schizophrenia, and all those, if they have too many of them, then they go against the rules and have to get shut down. And there was a nursing facility in Ohio, in Washington Courthouse, that defined itself as the place where if you couldn't find anywhere else for somebody, they'd take them. The most difficult to place, the most difficult to work with, that's where you went. And wouldn't you know it, one floor after the next, just full of people with serious and persistent mental illness. And so we had to shut it down. And it makes sense. We don't want to necessarily imprison a bunch of people just because they have a mental health diagnosis. 
And so every day I would take the hour and a half trip from Columbus to Washington Courthouse, Ohio, in the middle of winter, with snow and freezing weather, to go try to help move these people out. Now I've tried really hard in my job to think of every single person because no one else would, to think of all these people as beloved children of God. That these were folks that deserved dignity and love and respect. Week after week, try to get folks into new facilities or try to get them out into the community. And I'll never forget the day that my supervisors came. For any of you who have not worked in the nursing home field, this idea of a long-term care ombudsman, this person works for the state and their job is to be the ultimate caretaker of every single individual who's in a nursing home. I watched her, one of her close higher-up colleagues, walk around with a bunch of people with mental illness and say, will you take them? Because there was a crowd of nursing home directors right behind them. And if you ever wanted to experience what it was like to be at an auction, auctioning off people, I would have invited you to be in that experience with me. Watching people who have promised that their life was about caring for people, treating them like chattel. Treating them like a Medicaid number on a spreadsheet. Not to mention the locked floor in the basement where people were kept at the bottom of the, you know, the really hard to keep folks, where urine just was on the floor and there wasn't anything anybody could do about it. Valentine's Day of 2014, we got the last person out. They didn't want to leave, that was the only home that they knew. Can you imagine if, if you had serious bipolar disorder? You watched all your friends leave in this only place that you know that now you can no longer be? And now people you don't know are asking you to leave your only home? Finally, after some yelling with the director of the, uh, director of the agency that I worked with, and you know, who had the governor right on the line, so I'm proud to say I yelled at Governor Kasich. <laughs> Who is a good guy? Let me just say that. I finally said, this is a person. This is their only home. So after hours and hours and hours of fighting, we finally got this person into an ambulance, only in the snow to have that ambulance flip over on the highway. And I followed some of those folks that I had helped get into nursing homes and get out on their own. I had a couple friends still at the state of Ohio who would let me know if these folks had passed away. But what was so amazing is you got to see how what was a Medicaid line, a person up on a stage ready to be sold, now all of a sudden had a name and had interests. You know, I got to know what brand of cigarettes they like to smoke. And ideally, it would have been none, but you know, you can't really know. 
I still carry a book, and anytime if y'all are in my office, I'll show you this book, a book all about Jesus that one of the, one of the residents gave to me because they said, I feel like you need to see this. I'm glad that you love me. You see, underneath all of the rhetoric, all of the bureaucracy, all of this stuff that we love to fight about as people, if you watch the seven-hour marathon board meeting of Duval County Schools, you'll see we love to fight. But underneath all of that, what Carlton Manor taught me is that what we are called to do as Christians is get down to the very end of it all where we can acknowledge somebody is beloved, that no one is just chattel, no one is just a mask, no one is just a vaccine. Everybody is the deep complexity and belovedness that all of us hope for. And I will tell you, I remember going home that night, flopping into bed because, you know, you watch an ambulance tip over that's enough to do you in. I said to Lindsay, I can't do this anymore. It was at that moment I thought, you know, the best thing I could do is go to seminary and help people who are in these positions find ways to think through this better. So if you ever want to know why I'm here today, why this really does matter to me, it's those folks at Carlton Manor who were treated as chattel I just couldn't abide by anymore. We have the opportunity more than any other people in the world to right some of those wrongs. And so friends, let us continue to go that direction. Whether you are just a member of the community planting your vineyards, or whether you're somebody who's looking to run for city council, or run for mayor, or run for governor, let us continue to work for better stewards and uncover the unknown gods and help people, as they clamor in the darkness, find the light that we have had for joy. Thanks be to God.